We begin our new series this morning in, in the book of Galatians chapter 5. Turn there with me. We also have a video for you. We want to just kind of show you this video and get you fired up. It's online as well. You can share it with uh, your friends and invite them to come to church. Amen, amen. So we're excited about it. Turning your Bibles to the Galatians. I'm going to do our scripture reading, uh, read with you, fruit of the Spirit. We're looking at Galatians chapter 5, and I'll dismiss the children in a minute. Let's look at Galatians 5. Uh, this morning is a little bit different. I have a little bit of a challenge ahead of me. I'm going to lay out for you the gospel, excuse me, the gospel according to John. I've been saying that for a year and a half. <laughs> lay out the book of Galatians for you this morning, kind of an introduction to the book. We're not going to actually look at the fruit itself, but we'll look at the introduction. You've got to understand Galatians before we can look at the fruit in chapter 5. That's, that's the difficult part about doing expository preaching and jumping into a, into a text. So turn with me, with me to the, the book of Galatians. I want to read from you, for you chapter 5, verses 16 through 25 through 24, and, um, and then we'll dismiss the kids. So hear the word of the Lord, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. There are Bibles in the back. You can grab one uh, after we have our reading and we dismiss the kids. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church, chapter 5, verse 16. I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these, just in case there's something there that you're wondering. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We do still need help for second to fourth grade children's church. 
Um, I believe they're going to be a combined class because we don't have the teachers. So if you're, if you're on the fence, you're contemplating, we'll train you if that's what God wants you to do. So please uh, stop by the information desk. You can see Pastor Chris or myself, and we'll get you connected with Diane Miller. Her information in the bulletin as well, our deaconess of a children's church. So we still need teachers, second through fourth grade, 11 o'clock. So with that, children are dismissed, <coughs> and we are in Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, again, there's some back there. Children are dismissed at this time for Children's Church. So as I said, we are, we're, it's a complicated task before me. I want to introduce you to the book of Galatians, <coughs> define some terms, and then jump into the text for our study. So if you're in Galatians, hopefully you are. If not, find that place. If you're not sure, uh, there's an index in front of your Bible to tell you where Galatians is. What I want to do is let's look at the first few verses in Galatians in the book of Galatians, and we'll see, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, okay, we'll see chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, okay, introducing you, introducing you to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, all right, sent in Christ authority, capital A, there are no capital A's anymore, they don't have that authority that Paul has, if you meet somebody that says they do, run, Not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And, verse 2, all the brothers who are with me, Paul's traveling companions, to the churches of Galatia. The author is indisputable. It's the Apostle Paul. Letters in antiquity are different than letters today. We write our name uh, at the bottom. In those days, the, the, the author of the letter would write his name at the top with his credentials. And Paul, right out of the box in the first chapter, is putting his apostolic authority on display. It was given to him not by man, but through Christ himself and God the Father. Right away we see Paul writing to the young southern Galatian churches, mentioning two very important themes in which he will bring out throughout the letter. The first is his apostolic authority. It was under attack in those days. Goes from chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10. Second, like a good church planter, Paul had planted these churches in Galatia. You can see that in Acts 13 and 14. Like a good church planter and a good pastor, he's concerned about false brothers, false teachers that had come into this young church, teaching them things that were contrary, antithetical to the gospel message in which he preached when he planted the church. The Galatians were a fickle people. They, were, uh, they didn't have any really deep religious conviction. They were easily swayed. They had a lot of different ideas from Greek theology and Greek uh, gods. And, and, and Paul's concerned about them. Galatian is in, um, in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And here, what we see happening, and Paul will deal with in the book of Galatia, is what's happened in much of her church history. We've been studying the Reformation. It's when the gospel is under attack... that the truth of the gospel is then driven out from underneath the attack and brought to the forefront. And that's why Paul is writing this, 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 this account, this Galatian letter, to proclaim the truth of the gospel of the justification by faith alone. False brothers had come in and they were twisting and distorting that gospel message. 
It, it, now he wants to solidify, and, and as the reform movement has done, solidify the truth of the gospel. He's defending his apostolic calling and he's defending the gospel. Both of those things were under attack in his day. In fact, the heart of Galatia is the gospel. Justification by faith alone. So rather than open up in prayer and an invocation as he does in many of his letters, look with me at verse 3. He opens up with a gospel primer, a primer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, verse 4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. If we're going to understand the, if we're going to understand the transformative work of God in Christ, we need to understand what the gospel is. All of us are sinners. You and I have sinned against God. It's fundamental to our understanding of who God is and what God has done in Christ. You and I fall short from his expectations of what he's asked us to do. I mean, who among us could say they're without fault? If you think you do, just ask the person sitting next to you. You may think you're better than that person, <laughs> But let's put your life up against purity and, 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 and uh, beauty and perfection and glory. It's a different question. Have you ever held unforgiveness in your heart? you ever been bitter or jealous or lie or have rage? You and I sin because we're sinners. We're sinners because we sin. You and I unquestionably have pursued other things in the place of God and violated the first commandment, which is idolatry. Now, we could try really hard and be good. Some of us have. And the good news is, Christ gave himself for our sins. All of us have sinned, and Christ dies for all our sins. No matter how dark they are, Jesus' death pays the penalty for your sin, debt, and mine. On the cross, he takes the wrath for sin in my place and dies for my sin and my atonement. And because he is the perfect righteous son, he is able to impute his righteousness to me. I'm having trouble breathing. I'm going to sit. I've had a breathing problem this week. I apologize. So you're going to get a a, a mellow glue today. (sighs) Okay. Jesus Christ lives out the law perfectly. And he imputes his righteousness, his perfection to us. So God doesn't look at us and see our sin. What Christ looks at us and sees, what God looks at us, sees our righteousness that Christ gives us alone. And God delights in us. God delights in you and me, not because he sees our sin, but because he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Bible calls justification. That's a very important word. Very, if you don't know what the word justification is, it's very important in the scriptures. In fact, that's what Paul is fighting against in the book of Galatia. Paul's argument is that we've been justified by faith alone through Christ alone. Now, the word justification is a forensic term. It means that we are being declared righteous. God declares us righteous, one who continues to sin, because all of us have sinned, while we were still in our sinning state. We have not been perfected yet. But because of justification, God declares us righteous because of Christ's righteousness. 
It doesn't mean, justification doesn't mean that all of a sudden we stop sinning and we become perfectly, uh, and, you know, perpetually perfect, right? Who's perpetually perfect? Anyone? No. Justification, though, is very important that you understand. It's, a two, it's like a two-sided coin. On one side, we've been declared forgiven, not guilty. On the other side of the coin, which is just as important, is that we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. So in other words, Jesus lives the law, obeys the law perfectly, and then his righteousness, the perfect obedience to the law, is given to us and counted to us by faith alone. See, we need a righteousness because we don't have any. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross, forgives us, we're not guilty, we've been forgiven, and then he imputes to us and counts to us his perfect law obedience righteousness to us. That's what justification is. And here's the problem that was in Galatia. And here's the problem that you and I face today in what's called Pharisee-like behavior or Pharisee-like thinking of in our day. Pharisees in that day and Pharisees in our day are very religious. We do our religious duty. We're systematic in our worship, right? We're, tra- we're, we're, we're traditional in our theology. We're, 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 we're moral in our conduct. Yet something is missing. In Phariseeism, a heart is not being transformed by the gospel, by justification, by faith alone. You see, God is on the mind, but is rejected from penetrating and transforming the heart. That's Phariseeism. That's hypocrisy. Pharisees in those days and Pharisees in our day think that God works for them as they work for him. It's a mutual understanding. Therefore, their religion is, again, hypocrisy. So what happens in Pharisaicism lifestyle is we read our Bibles, we tithe, we give, we give you know, money to the church, we pray, we read, we do all those things as a system in order to gain our salvation, in order to add to our salvation. Right? It's a system in which we are now working alongside God so that we now can be justified. Paul will tell the Galatian church in chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, we know that a person is not justified, declared, forgiven, and imputed righteousness of Christ by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified, okay? That's very important, chapter 2, verse 16. What they fail to understand and what Pharisees fail to understand is we cannot gain, we cannot earn salvation. It's a gift given to us for free. The way out of being a Pharisee in Galatia and today is the gospel, right? Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation, If we trust in him, he will make us right with God by giving us the gift of faith and the gift of his grace called salvation. But, but, we must reject our own righteousness. We we, we have to reject our own righteousness. We have to receive the righteousness of Christ. That's what Pharisees failed to do. Paul the apostle was so upset at the false teachers known as Judaizers in the Galatian church, is that he calls down a curse. Adding to the gospel, he calls down a curse upon the Judaizers and even himself. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the what? Grace. And turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one. But there is some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned, accursed. Okay? I need everyone to be honest here. We have a tendency to become Pharisees. It's hard to leave legalism behind. It's it's the default mode of every human heart. Always looking to give back, always looking to earn, always looking to be our own gods. You see, although we initially receive salvation by God's grace as a gift, we try to add an addendum to it. We believe that God loves us, but secretly we suspect that his love is conditional. That it depends on how we're doing in our Christian life. That's not justification by faith. And we end up with this performance-based, law-based Christianity that denies the grace of God. Although we've been saved by grace, we not always live by the gospel, okay? So Paul's talking about the law, being justified by the law instead of justified by grace. Now, when you talk about the law in the Bible, when the Bible talks about the law, most theologians break it up into three categories. I just want to share with you quickly, okay? Three categories of the law. Does everybody know what they are? There, there, there. Um, ceremonial law. There are uh, dietary laws. There are all kinds of different laws uh, in in um, in in the Old Testament. Most of the time, when you talk about laws, you're talking about either the whole Bible or the five books of of Moses, called the Pentateuch. So you have ceremonial, civil, and moral. Ceremonial, civil, and moral. The ceremonial laws apply to the things like the temple. The sacrificial system, those are the ceremonial laws, the the feasts. The civil laws are just that, they're civil laws. God had given the nation of Israel who didn't have a government, he was what they call a theocracy, he was their government, he was their king, and he gave them laws to live by in the civil realm. Ceremonial, civil. Then you have God's moral laws, the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws, showing forth his character. So you have the civil, you have the ceremonial, and you have the moral laws, Don't kill, don't steal, right? So when we talk about the laws today as Christians, we're mostly talking about the moral laws, all right? And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he fulfills all the law. He fulfills all the ceremonial law, the moral standards, all the laws of God. Jesus completely fills perfectly. Matthew chapter five. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law, the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. Jesus comes and fulfills the law perfectly, okay? Paul writes in Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. One of the purposes of the law is to point us to Jesus because we need a savior. We have sinned against God's moral law. And in the church of Galatia, false teachers had infiltrated the ranks, the the people, to spy on their freedom that they had. This freedom of being justified by faith alone was not going well with the Judaizers. They said, you have to add the moral standards or some other dietary, especially circumcision, to your already faith in Christ. You have to add that to your faith in order to be right with God. You see the problem there? Right? You don't need to trust Christ alone for your salvation. You need to obey the laws of Moses in order to be right with God. Right? That's, that's what the problem is. 
No one, no one who, who tries to observe the law will be able to stand before God. That's the problem. And that's what Paul's argument is. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. Very important. You need to mark this in your Bible. Chapter 5, verse 18. But you are led by the Spirit. You are not what? Somebody have it. Under the law. Romans 6.15 says the same thing. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So you see what Paul is saying? He's saying we're not under the law. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're not under the law, we're under grace? Does it mean that we are no longer bound by the law? Does it mean that we are over the law since we're not under the law? Does it mean that we still that we are not obligated to obey the moral standard of God, that there's no obligation to keep God's moral standards? Is that what it means? If that's the case, then Jesus got it wrong. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says, to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is very important. Obeying does not, obeying does not go outside the, you know, just get thrown out the window because of God's grace. What it means to be under the law, catch this please. What it means to be under the law refers to law obeying, not law relying. Okay? Not to law obeying, but law relying. When you're under the law, you're relying on the law. Under the law means you're relying on the law for your justification to be right with God, to somehow be loved by God, accepted by God. You're relying on that law in order to be right with God. That's the problem. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, we see that very clearly. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? It is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Who does that? Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because we can't live for it, to it. For the righteous shall live by faith. So when we think we can win God's approval, acceptance, Forgiveness through our moral performance and obedience, it becomes a crushing weight. We're under the law. I've got to, I gotta keep doing it. God won't love me, He won't approve me, He won't accept me. But when we learn that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and now we who believe in Him are secure in God's love, then we by the Spirit work in us supernaturally want to delight, want to resemble, want to love the one who's done this for us. Do you see the difference? How do we do that? By following Christ. If you love me, you will obey me. Paul is not under the law, but was not free to become sexually immoral or an idolater. Why? Because Paul no longer saw the law as a mean of righteousness. He understood that he belonged to Christ and that meant being subject to the law of Christ, the law of love. 1 Corinthians 9.21 Though he is not under the law, I am not free from God's law, Paul says. I'm under Christ's law. Galatians 2.6.2 Bear one another's burden. Fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul's not under the law, earning salvation. He is now free. Now listen. Paul is not under the law, 
as a way to earn his salvation, but he's now free to see the beauty, the glory of God's law fulfilled in Christ and submit to it as a way to love his Savior. Jesus said the law sits on two promises, right? Two things. Love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as thyself. What is the law of Christ? What is the principal law of Christ? It's the law of love. It's the law of love. But listen, beloved, listen carefully. We are obligated to the law of Christ, but not for God's approval, but because of God's approval. Okay, let me say it again. We are obligated to the law of Christ, the law of love, but not for God's approval, but because of God's approval. Not to atone for our sins, but because our sins have been atoned. Not to work our way into God's favor, but because Christ's work has made a way into God's favor. It is God's love for us through the gospel that compels us to obedience. Getting that mixed up, you wind up being like the Galatian church. So Paul's argument is simple. If you trust Christ, if you rely upon Christ, that's all you need to be made right with God, to have forgiveness of sins, to have the imputed, counted righteousness of Christ on your behalf, not obeying the law of Moses. So that takes us to chapter 5. In chapter 5 in Galatians, in Galatia, in, in, in the church of Galatia, Paul changes his arguments from his doctrinal standpoint, actually his biography, then doctrinal standpoint, to more of a practical thing. Look at chapter 5 with me. Some of you are thinking, wow, this is pretty, he's a little more calm, I could follow him better. <laughs> Don't get used to it. Okay. <clears throat> Chapter 5, now he wants to bring application, and we'll get into our text, right? He wants to bring application. We're justified by faith alone. Look at verse 1 from with me, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't be submitted again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's part of the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You want to live by the law? Follow it completely. But then you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, that's living under the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit of faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, following the covenant law of of Moses, nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Verse 13. For you were called, same freedom, talking about freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We'll get into that. But through love, what? Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The faith that The faith that alone justifies, the reformers said, is never alone. The faith that alone justifies is never alone. True faith is always a working faith, a faith that expresses itself in love to God and to others. Only faith working through love. It was Martin Luther who said, he who wants to be a true Christian or to belong to the kingdom of Christ must be truly a believer, but he he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. End quote. Love is the outworking of genuine faith. What Paul is saying is, yes, you are free 
You are free from something, but also you are saved to something. And that is to love God and to love others. The gospel is that I'm now being transformed by grace, by justification, by faith alone, and love of God and the grace of God, not self-effort. And this is where the rubber hits the road, family. Being motivated by love makes my effort in obedience joy. Being motivated by love makes my effort in obedience joy. Paul was afraid that the Galatians might fall back into bondage under the law. So he challenges them to be free in Christ, to remain free. Free from sin, guilt, and the curse of the law. But there's a threat to freedom and liberty as well, and that's license. Right? It's freedom taken to its immoral extreme. When the gospel of grace comes into our hearts by the mercy of God, we have a new heart, we have a regenerated heart. A heart that serves, loves, and wants to worship God. That's his spirit dwelling in us. So the law, the, the, the revealed will of God, which up to this point has been crushing and condemns, now because of the gospel, gives us a trajectory to, to freely pursue the holiness of God. Because we know if we stumble and when we stumble in our pursuit, Christ paid for that. We, we, we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So all of a sudden, the law no longer feels like a weight, but becomes like David, honey on our lips. Or John, who writes, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Or the psalmist, I delight in the law of God, and on his law, I meditate day and night. If the the moral standard or the moral trajectory of God's law as will revealed to us in his moral standard is a weight to you, you don't understand grace. Okay? If you love me, you'll obey me. Will it be perfect? No. But we rest in God's grace, justified by faith alone. All my sins, past, present, and future, done on the cross, imputed righteousness, pursuing God with that. See the difference? It's huge. Okay? It's huge. Because faith in Christ, he's given us this free gift. He died for us. All our sins have been forgiven. That's justification by faith alone. So the gospel goes out. It's transforming hearts. And we need to stand firm, not falling back into legalism, putting ourselves underneath the law, being forgiven. We're not trying to work our way in so that God delights in me. He delights in me because of Christ. He forgives me not because I'm working, because of Christ. And now we're not just going to be antinomianism, which is without the law. We don't really care what God says. How do we stand in that road? The gospel. I know I keep saying it, but the gospel. We preach the gospel. We meditate upon the gospel. The gospel declares that a righteous, perfect judge has declared us forgiven, not guilty, spotless, perfect, righteous, poured out his spirit. We cry out, Abba, Father. He loves us. He he cares for us. He delights in us. And we meditate on that truth. We don't move from that truth. And that becomes the fuel in which we are motivated and transformed. Okay, does that make sense? So the gospel frees us to do what? To pursue God. The gospel frees us to what? Love others. The gospel frees us to love God and to love people without fear. Knowing we're going to fall short and knowing that our sins are forgiven. We don't take delight in our fallings and we don't take delight in our sin but it brings us to a place of repentance and prayer, encouragement, pushing us toward holiness and repentance and the pursuit of God. If your pursuit of God is what you do, you're in trouble. If the pursuit of God is what he's already done for you, you got it covered. Does that make sense? 
I hope it does. Because the gospel frees me now to pursue Christ, to grow in him and to love him. And once we get the law and obedience and grace in the right order, we get the motive, we can see how the work of the Holy Spirit is transforming our hearts and producing fruits. Just a few things we're going to cover. Chapter 5, verse 16 says this. I don't have it up on the screen, but chapter 5, verse 16. What we're going to do is, let's look at this verse. Verse 16, I walk in by the Spirit, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul will go on to say, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, verse 18, live by the Spirit, verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit, verse 26. Walk, led, live, and keep in step. All these verbs uh, advocate a relationship of, of interaction, of vigorous interaction, direction, and purpose. And what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? To glorify Christ, to make the gospel known, to bring, to bring us to the place of, of the beauty and the glory of Christ and to conform us into that image. It's the gospel, right? Paul said in chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 1 through 3, that they had received the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And now he's saying that same reception by faith through the gospel, through the cross, keep with that. Keep doing that. Be led by that. Walk in that. Be, be driven by that. Walk in that. So if we continue to walk in the Spirit, we're not going to be thwarted from our sinful, repressive flesh and go back to living under the law. So walking in the Spirit is a supernatural work. We're being controlled by the Spirit of God, the one who brings initial salvation, who regenerates our hearts, and now we are able to, we're enabled to be transformed, not through outward constraint of the law, but with the inner compulsion of the Spirit. Everybody following me? Nod your head. Okay. Now, if you look at our text, and, I, and, and I'm going to say this probably every week, what Paul is saying, very important, is there's a major difference between a morally restrained heart relying on the law and a supernatural transformed heart resting in the gospel. Okay? Difference between a morally restrained heart relying on the law and a supernatural transformed heart resting in the gospel. There's the difference. There's a difference. And the fruit of the Spirit grows in us supernaturally as we apply the gospel to our already justified hearts, forgiven, imputed righteousness. Law relying cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. But when the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the internal work of the gospel, I'm going to explain that, it actually fulfills the law of love. Loving God, loving others. How does that happen? That's what this series is about. Each fruit we explore will be through the internal working of a justified heart, the internal gospel work. That's what this series is all about. How does the work, how does the inner work of the Spirit produce love? The foundation of it. It's the gospel of love. God's love been poured out on our hearts through the gospel. How does the inner work of the Spirit produce joy? The reality of the gospel should bring joy. How does the inner work of the Spirit produce patience? Oh, my word. I think about this all the time. In the gospel, God's patience for me is no limit. So let's look at, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit as an overview. Just a few more minutes. And what I want to do is not look at any particular trait. What I want to do is two, two things. 
How do you know if it's gospel fruit? How do you know it's really the internal work? How do you, how do you evaluate that, that it's the gospel working in your heart? And second, how do we grow in them? So two kinds of things, evaluating and growing in them. That's all we're going to do today. Turn Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. We know that the fruit of the Spirit is an internal work of the gospel when it shows up internally. I know that's deeply theological. It shows up internally where the relying on the law cannot go. Against such thing there is no law. No law relying justification can produce fruits. Law restrains, law deters, law condemns. There is no law against these virtues. True internal gospel growth is actually the work of love, as I said. Imagine a law that says, or that's against, joylessness, or a law against anxiety. We could, we could outwardly look like we're joyful and we don't have anxiety, but again, we'd be hypocrites. Because law prohibiting things like that, it can stop the outward look. You could look a certain way to certain people outwardly, but it doesn't really get into the heart where the issue really lies. If you have a really good law against, a really strict law against murder, you could probably cut down killings and murdering. But it doesn't get to the heart of anger and rage, which is the root of murder. You can have a well-enforced law against sexual abuse, but it doesn't get to the real issue of disdain and disregard for women, which is the root of it all. So what will do it? It's the spirit. Where the Spirit is, the law can't go. And the Apostle is saying that the Spirit deals with things that the law doesn't deal with. It's the Spirit that changes the desires of the heart. It's the Spirit that reveals to us that we've been justified by faith alone and in Christ alone. It is the Spirit that pours out God's love in our hearts, Paul tells us. So the law can deal with the external, but it can't deal with the internal. The Spirit does the internal and the external. And practically speaking, what happens is the law principle of love shows up, and that's the moral drive that touches us in the depth of our hearts where the law cannot go. If obedience, if obedience to Christ is not coming from a heart of unconditional love and acceptance, but moral restraint, it will not allow God's life to live in you. It will not allow God's love to live in and through you, not by moral restraint. It has to be unconditional love and acceptance. By the Spirit, the gospel moves in the internal. It's also symmetrical. Number two, look what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's a singular now, singular verb with predicates, a plural predicate, characteristic. The fruit of the Spirit is. Not the fruits of the Spirit are. That's deliberate. The Apostle Paul did that deliberately. He wants to understand that the fruit of the Spirit, that the traits are not individually separable. Traits, they're, they're independent upon one another. Like an organic in nature, organisms grow more complex and grow out of a single cell in most cases. And therefore, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, they're all interdependent. They have to come together. They're clustered. That's what he means by that. They're singular, yet separate. The problem is, our selfishness and our self-righteousness, we tend to lean... <laughs> I know I do, toward traits that are more of our temperament. They're not really spiritual fruits, right? The fruit of the Spirit is not a matter of your temperament. 
the way God wired you. It's the result of the Holy Spirit, new birth in you. It's the work of the Spirit. So, if you're generally a kind person, you're going to be growing in kindness. We respond to admonition and compassion. We're tender-hearted people. We're kind. We see hurt. We see need. We, we run. At the same time, we find it may be difficult to be uh, faithful with responsibilities and have self-control. And we say, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah, probably. Not the Spirit, though. One, sp- one aspect of the fruit we see is faithfulness. The word really means assertive and bold. Some people are just temperament, you know, their, their temperament is they're bold, they're assertive. And yet they become somewhat arrogant. Some people are gentle and kind. And yet they're called on to be bold at certain times. The, actually, faithfulness means martyrdom. So you can be one way and growing and not growing in another. That's not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is that we're growing in all the areas of the Spirit. You can't grow in your temperament and say it's the work of the Spirit. There are times we need to be bold. There are times we need to be gentle. Right? So they grow together. And if we're honest, as I said, sometimes gentleness is really just a form of cowardness. When God wants us to step up, I'm a gentle soul. Well, no, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Okay? See the difference? The fruit are inseparably linked together. Number three, it's a process, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evidence. You have deeds and you have fruit. What's the difference? How fast does it take you to do your dirty deed? Pretty quick. How fast does it take for fruit to grow? Really long. Dave Poach and Chuck were out there yesterday uh, doing the garden, planted, tree, uh, planted tomato plants yesterday. If I see them out there every day wondering if it's growing, I'm thinking something's wrong. Like, give it a chance, right? Fruit takes time. Fruit takes time. Uh, are, 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 you, are you a person that says, you know, or a year ago I would have responded differently. Or two years ago, you know, I would have done things differently. I, 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 I'm, I'm, by God's grace, I could see there's been some growth. I, I, I'm growing. It's not fast growth, but it's growing. I'm in, I'm in a process, I'm not watching it every day, but I'm looking back. I'm doing some, I'm doing some you know, uh, looking back over my life. I do that, let's say, on your birthday or the first of the year. Just kind of take an inventory. It's a process, okay? So it's internal, it's symmetrical, it's a process. Secondly, I want you to recognize what's the problem, right? We're, we're talking about now practically speaking. We, we, we understand what it is, now I want to see how, how, how do we know, how do we know it's internal, it's symmetrical, it's a process, and now how do we grow in them? Number one, how do we grow? Realize there's a problem. Look with me in the contrast between verse 16 and 18. There, there is a, what's called parallelism here. Verse 16 and verse 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, A, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, B. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, A, Walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. You are not what? Under the law. We talked about this already, right? The law under the law is a system-based identity, a system-based salvation, a performance-based salvation, right? That's not true. We've been justified by faith alone. Now, the word flesh, we're going to get into this. I'm not going to get into it today, more in a couple of weeks, is the word sinful nature in NIV. It's the word sarks. I don't like, I like the ESV, the word flesh, uh, the word sarks in the Greek is translated flesh. I like that. The NIV, I like the NIV, but I don't like sinful nature. Because it implies that we have two natures. When we really have the Spirit of God dwelling, we become new children in Christ. 
the sinful nature or the flesh is that part of us that has the continued disposition against God. And it stays with us until we die and we are glorified. It's not really an identity. It's not really a nature. It is a disposition to rebel against God. And that's something we fight, right? How many people are fighting against right and wrong? It says the very things you want to do, you don't do. There's a desire in you of the Spirit of God to obey. And there's a part of you going, don't do it. Go your own way. So walk in that spirit, not in the flesh. So we have to understand that there's a war going on. And we're going to talk about that some more. I don't have time to get into that. There's a war going on, and we've got to identify that there's a problem. There's a flesh. Part of us wants to rebel. There's a spirit that wants us to, to not be under the law, but to live in love and grace and mercy. Okay? Number one, understand the problem. Number two, crucify the flesh. Look with me in Galatians 5.24, and we'll close on this verse. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? crucified the flesh with its passion and its desires. Can we go back one slide, Donovan? Thank you. Crucify the flesh with its passion and desires. Now, legalists, Pharisees, see that verse and they say, okay, I've got to try harder. I've got to put my will against the things that I should not be doing. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't want to do this. There's nothing wrong with putting your will against doing something wrong. In fact, if you want to do something wrong with me, I'd appreciate it if you put your will against it. That, just saying, just saying. But that's not exactly or only what it means. Chapter 8 of Romans says this, talking about crucifying the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, that sinful nature, that rebellion against God, you must die, that must die. But if you, me and you, but if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Do you see the difference? The difference is, it's not I'm going to try harder. It is putting to death the deeds of the flesh and the things you don't want to do by the Spirit. It's not moral restraint. That's religion. It'll fail. It only stops the effects. It doesn't deal with the heart. To crucify the flesh can't be just to refuse to do something. It's got to be more than that. We make plans. I'm going to work harder. We make all kinds. Of, we implement plans. There's nothing wrong again. We should get up. We should be disciplined. We should read our Bibles. We should pray. We should make good choices. I'm all for that. But what is the motive? Is it rulemaking? Being really serious and making vows and putting it together so that God will love me? That's Phariseeism. That's the work of the flesh. In other words, it's not just stop doing something and boasting that you didn't do it because, you know, look how good you are. That's pride. Satan got kicked out of heaven because of pride. So that's not really progress, right? Looking like Satan, acting like Satan. <laughs> Some of us just throw up our hands and say, you know, I can't do this anymore. And I got to stop, stop, stop. That's, I, you know, I just got to, I've got to crucify the flesh. No, it's by the Spirit's. So here's the final key. How do we do that? Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. Listen, remember you belong to Jesus Christ. To crucify the flesh is only for those who already know that they belong to Christ. They are secured in his love. Crucifying the flesh is related to that degree, to the degree that we know that we belong, that we are completely justified, declared not guilty, and the righteousness of Christ has been credited to me. No work. I can never earn it. It takes humility. 
You belong to him because of love and grace. Every religion, every religion has the imperative doing behavior first, then the indicative, you belong. Okay, they have the imperative, then the indicative. If you crucify the flesh, you belong to God. That's not what Paul writes. That's not what Jesus, he says, you belong to me. That's the indicative, the imperative, then crucify the flesh. Dr. Neil Anderson said it this way. It is not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that determines what you do. If who you are is justified, righteous, pure, clean before God, then that's how we ought to respond. Understanding that in the sufficiency of God's grace in the gospel, you already belong. You're already delighted in. You're already accepted. You're already his possession. In Christ, if you have faith and trust in Christ, God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, mine. If you understand that, you will crucify the flesh with joy. You love God. God loves you. He changed you. And now you're loving him back. You are more in love with him each and every day. And as you love God, the flesh will die. If we simply run around, I gotta stop sinning, I gotta stop sinning, and and, and not say, I need to love God, I need to walk toward Jesus, I need to listen to Jesus, I need to walk with Jesus, be close to Jesus, we're just gonna be a moralistic, justifying ourselves behavior. So if, if you're with Jesus and you're loving Jesus, and you're following Jesus, and you're cleansed and washed with Jesus, and you're standing on justification by faith alone in Jesus, guess who you're going to look like? Jesus, right? You can try to be like Jesus without being with Jesus, and and it's not going to work. Being with Jesus, justified, forgiven, loving Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit will cause the flesh to die. Listen, you are only as loving as you see Jesus. He truly is. You are only as patient as he truly is. You are only as kind as you see he truly is. And as we love Jesus and get closer to him, we get further away from sin. And guess what the byproduct is? Internal gospel growth. Let's pray. Father, it is... just unfathomable in some ways the love that you have for us some of us are just running on that treadmill some of us are just trying our hardest to please you help us to humble ourselves and to recognize that Christ has done that for us that he has got us back he he has he got our back he he has died in our place he has died for all our sins past present and future allow us please by the power of your spirit to pursue you because of what Christ has already done. Not with guilt and condemnation, but with love and humility and repentance and joy. And Father, there are some here who are trying to be their own gods, doing their own thing. And Father, they too will not understand your love. Humble them as well. And Lord, we pray that the gospel, the truth of the gospel will transform our hearts so that we will be more loving and kind and patience and and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and, and all the things of the Spirit would come from a heart that is transformed by the gospel of love and grace and mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.